Hey there, welcome to the National Working Waterfront podcast, the show where we chat about topics related to the working waterfront, an important driver of the blue economy and development along our coast. I am your host, Ashley Bennis, a planning specialist with Texas Sea Grant. This show is a collaboration between the National Working Waterfront Network and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. So now that we've got that out of the way, I am so excited to get the ball rolling on our topic today because we are going to hear from guests that work in the production of offshore wind energy. Presently, the installed capacity or the amount of energy output from wind turbine farms is about 20 gigawatts. But this is expected to increase significantly in the coming decades, potentially reaching anywhere from 130 to 140 gigawatts by 2030. According to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, investment into offshore wind energy surged to $35 billion in the first half of 2020, three times higher than the same period the year before. Offshore wind has a huge potential to supply affordable green energy to population centers around the globe. The International Energy Agency said in a report last year that offshore wind turbines could generate enough electricity to power every home and business on Earth, although they currently provide around less than 1% of global power generation. As we grapple with addressing our unsustainable dependence on fossil fuels, offshore wind energy provides a practical solution. Here in the US, we have only just begun to invest in offshore wind energy. While in the United Kingdom and Northern Europe, wind farms have been scaling up in wattage since the mid-1990s. And for those of you that don't know, because I didn't, offshore wind farms have many of the same advantages as land-based wind farms. They provide a renewable energy, they do not require water to be used, they provide a domestic energy source, they create jobs, and they do not emit environmental pollutants or greenhouse gases. Sounds pretty good, right? Along with that, much of our energy needs come from coastal communities. In fact, about half of the U.S. population lives in coastal areas, and having access to renewable energy from an offshore wind farm can help to meet our coastal energy needs. Following the scalability path blazed by offshore wind projects in Northern Europe, which now have a total installed capacity of around 18,499 megawatts across 11 countries. The stars are aligned for the U.S. industry. Costs have come down, technology has gone up, states have mandated ambitious renewable energy goals, and the federal government has leased 15 commercial ocean sites for a total of $472 million. On today's show, we will discuss how ports are moving forward with offshore wind energy development and consider how this enormous investment can be used to develop more sustainable green ports and increase coordination among states and ports to respond to the entire supply chain. In addition to U.S. examples, we will also look at the European wind experience, especially within the United Kingdom. We will chat about the strategies and opportunities to appropriately respond to offshore wind development needs while also addressing the needs of the broader working waterfront. Our guests today are Mark O'Reilly, the director at Square 5 Limited, and the former CEO and chairman of Team Humber Marine Alliance. Mark, a seasoned industrialist, has over 35 years experience in the industrial, engineering, maritime, and offshore renewable sectors. 
We will also be joined by Jay Borkland with Lloyd's Register and Tufts University. Jay is an associate research professor at Tufts University in Boston and part of the Tufts team in the Massachusetts Research Partnership for the Advancement of U.S. Offshore Wind Research and Standards. Co-hosting with me on this episode is Jen McCann, an American Shoreline podcast veteran. She works with Rhode Island Sea Grant and the University of Rhode Island Coastal Resources Center. Jen is a leading voice in the offshore wind energy space and will bring her expertise to this discussion. Thank you, Jen, for co-hosting with me today. Thank you, Ashley. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, Often when we're talking about offshore wind energy, we focus on the turbines, the environmental or the social or the economic impacts of the development of the offshore wind turbines. And today we get to talk about um, the working waterfront and the fact that there's millions of dollars that are being invested to upgrade these ports, upgrade these ports, um, and in some cases develop new ports to respond to this demand. So uh, we're gonna start the the conversation with Jay. Jay Borkland, could you please um, provide us some information and overview on how ports in the Northeast are gearing up to engage in offshore wind development? Well, sure, uh, Jen. Thank you for uh, the question. And um, it's uh, th- this is a momentous time in in offshore wind, as we're all uh, aware, particularly here in the U.S. Um, there's a great deal of opportunity that is um, developing. Uh, of course, one of the things that is uh, is is behind uh, all of the activity is the fact that uh, one cannot. Uh, install an offshore wind farm without having a port from which to marshal and uh, put all the pieces together. And um, there are ports up and down the coast, um, particularly in the Northeast, that are gearing up for this activity. It's a very specialized activity. The components that um, are part of an offshore wind farm are uh, much larger than anything that has been shipped around in bulk, uh, on the, at least in the U.S. East Coast uh, historically. And the, um, the there are all kinds of special um, upgrades to the ports that are needed in order to handle these things. Uh, in Massachusetts, for instance, the state invested in a full port upgrade, a brand new port in uh, the Marine Commerce Terminal in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which was a purpose-built port for offshore wind marshalling. Um, I was fortunate enough to be part, uh, to be the lead for the design team for that project uh, and learned extensively about what exactly needs to be done to upgrade ports from the uh, European, to meet the European standards for, for offshore wind. And um, the, there was quite a bit of um, a learning curve that had to be um, undertaken there. Now, other ports up and down the coast, uh, ports in Rhode Island, uh, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, um, all the way down the coast to the Carolinas are um, studying their efficacy in terms of being able to support offshore wind and the projects that are coming off the East Coast and looking at the lessons that were learned in the development of the port in Massachusetts to to build out. So there's a great deal of activity going on right now from uh, the the ports getting ready because everyone knows that it's the first thing that has to happen in in terms of the construction sequence. And uh, there is um, an awful lot of optimism that's happening. And uh, 
uh, as we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about as the as we go along here. Uh, there's an awful lot of um, integration with all other things, shipping, um, resiliency, and integration with the um, you know the other industries that are in the ports. Thank you, Jay. I know, and I, I know in Rhode Island, we're actually creating a new port um, to respond to this uh, this need. Um, Mark, um, over um, in the in the United Kingdom, clearly you guys have been in this game for for quite a, a while now, and um, you're you know there's also an accelerated commitment over there now. Can you talk a bit about uh, what's happening in the UK as it relates to the working waterfront? Hi, everybody. I've been involved with offshore wind for about 11 years, so probably a bit of a veteran for, for a new industry. Um, yeah, the UK is uh, probably the uh, global leader at the moment in terms of uh, installed uh, offshore wind capacity. But uh, you know, we had a slow start. Uh, it was a new industry. Uh, you know, there was mistakes made in the, in the beginning. Uh, it was uh, expensive. Um, so it took a while for the... Um, the government to uh, really embrace the industry as such. Uh, I'm lucky where uh, where we were based in in, um, in Humber in the north of England to be in a good ge uh, geographic position adjacent to uh, where some of the big potential offshore wind farms would be located. So uh, yeah, we started with um, modest sized projects, and now we have uh, uh, the world's largest offshore wind farms in operation um but it, yeah it's taken quite a bit of while and i think uh, you know re reducing the cost of offshore wind certainly helped the government sell uh, um offshore wind to uh, um you know to produce a, a, a competitive electricity so yeah we've, we've come a long way and uh we've got some uh, extensive plans um supported by the government to to ensure that we uh, uh, continue that um, that development. Great. And Mark, I know you've been a, a leader in um, promoting and developing the Humber region um, as a center for offshore renewable energy involving local and regional comp companies in supply chain. I remember um, hearing you present in Massachusetts a, a couple of years ago where you were encouraging um, the Northeast in particular to coordinate among states that one state could not do everything um is that is that a is that something that you've seen in the uk or uh can you talk a bit about coordination certainly i mean you know i think we had the same situation ourselves uh you know we're we're not uh, we're not we, we we have regions but we don't have states uh but it's still uh each region is competitive um, but I think it was down to infrastructure and, you know, for the Humber region, uh, we, you know, the busiest port complex in the um, UK and one of the busiest in Europe, but we weren't set up for any kind of manufacturing. You know, we had a, a history within the fishing industry um, and through transportation of uh, logistics of uh, containers, wood. Uh, Etc., but but not uh, anything that would support offshore wind. Um, so we've had to develop um, brand new ports and also um, uh, reinvigorate old ports. So uh, Hull would be a, a good example of development of a new port for Siemens, uh, which which Jay's been to. 
and also the old fishing port of Grimsby, which uh, you know was um, uh, was semi derelict and now is as a leading uh, uh, offshore uh, O and M port. So yeah, uh, geography has a lot to do with it, uh, but having the right kind of infrastructure uh, um, is important, or the potential. Uh, and I, I know with um, with with the US, and I've visited most of the, the East Coast states and worked with uh, a lot of uh, folks over there. Despite the the scale, um, there aren't that many locations that are are ideal for offshore wind. So. Um, you know, I think everybody's trying to make the best of uh, the the locations that they do have. Um, and I think what we've talked about uh, with 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 individual states is, you know, there there aren't good, there isn't going to be a factory in every state. Um, so there's going to be some areas that are uh, better uh, located for certain aspects of offshore wind. How did you get um, these entities to work together to coordinate as opposed to compete? Uh, well, I, th- I think it, it, we have a slightly different uh, – our, our, we are private ports, so we don't have any uh, state port like uh, um, Denmark. Um, so it, it is a competitive situation. So, you know, the competing between our region and the next region, uh, also with a government, uh, local government perspective, uh, you know, everybody's trying to – attract new jobs um within our our region is about a million people similar to, to rhode island and even within that small area there was some competition in the early days but um i think we just brought uh people together from uh you know whether it's local politicians national politicians universities supply chain and uh, we, we, you know, we 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 soon realised we needed to work together to make the best of this opportunity. Uh, but I'm, I'm not saying it was an easy ride to start with, but it was all about this collaboration, and and it's paid dividends. You know, and we we can see that, and we, I think we've we've uh, we've we've kind of relayed that information. Um, certainly, you know, to the to the to the northeast where there are smaller states uh, co-located, that it's best to try and work together where possible. I know politically that's not easy sometimes, uh, but, you know, uh, developers will uh, decide really. At the end of the day, they'll decide where, which locations are best for uh, a specific task, you know, whether it's manufacturing or, or an M. That's, re- that's a really great point, Mark. Um, I appreciate the perspective, and I'm kind of thinking on the other side of it is, you know, someone who's new to to this uh, topic and learning about it is uh, um, interested into hearing from from Jay a little bit is the consideration of is coordinating not a solution or is is not coordinating is not coordinating a better strategy in the U.S.? do you have any thoughts that uh, maybe that the state should keep working in, in silos uh, for Jay? Yeah. Uh, thanks. Yes, that's a great question. And uh, I think similar to, um, uh, to to what Mark was saying about the Humber region, um, there are a lot of parallels here. And, um, it, you know, we're, we're treading to some extent the same path that has been tread in Europe. Uh, and sometimes we pick up on the on the signals that Europe sends very readily, and sometimes um, we we need to to hear it um, a lot. It is very natural for 
each of the states to want to have a full supply chain and a set of ports and have the activity for the wind farms that are off their shores be occurring directly in that state and to have the jobs and the supply chain, et cetera, for it. Um, and, and entering into this, that is really the way the U.S. has kind of been thinking about things is a state-based approach. And um, that, of course, has set up some competition. And um, initially, it really looked like um, a lot of uh, redundancy was going to be built into the system. And of course, what happens eventually is you start putting the numbers on paper and you start looking at things and you realize that the, there's just no sense in having you know, two identical ports just over uh, the border from each other in two different states that are doing the same thing. So that collaboration is, um, you know, we were all told from the beginning um, that that collaboration was going to end up being forced and, and we're seeing it. And it's not so much that it's forced, it's just that it makes the most sense. It, it, if you collaborate and you coordinate in how things are being done, you know, you can reduce the impacts um, to the environment, um, the economic impa impacts of the, of the capital investment that's needed, et cetera. You can leverage all of the investment. And um, you, you take a regional approach to things and you come up with a more um, succinct and, and, a, and a better uh, process for the installation and the logistics of, of uh, the offshore wind installation, which benefits everyone. It, it's going to benefit the developers, which will encourage them to, to build more offshore wind. It's going to uh, benefit the states as they add capacity into the grid. Um, it, it is really um, something that's happening. So I guess you'd say there was a little bit of kicking and screaming to, to get the, the states to collaborate. Um, however, the reality is, is that um, collaboration is what's going to make the most sense. I think people see that much more clearly now, and it's really beginning to happen. And you look at um, some of the agreements that have been developed and some of the collaborations that are already happening, for instance, with Rhode Island and Massachusetts, uh, with uh, North Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland who are, are putting together a collective um, approach to offshore wind and with uh, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine with the Gulf of Maine um, that's uh, looking at beginning the development, there's um, a great deal of collaboration that's starting at an early stage there. So I think it's inevitable. Uh, the collaboration is going to happen and the, the market is going to force it. And I think what will happen is that the individual, individual states will start to see the good benefits of all of that collaboration and recognize that you know, this, the regional approach to the benefits will uh, be what benefits everyone. And I do believe that's part of what happened in the Humber region in the UK was it became very apparent that um, the collaboration within, at least within the region, uh, was something that was gonna be uh, very um, advantageous to the whole industry. That's a that's a great point. Jay, could, could I ask a follow-up question? Jay, could you give us a little bit more of an example of the collaboration? So how are they collaborating? Is one port doing one thing, another port doing another thing? Can you give us some more examples? Well, as Mark mentioned at, at uh, the outset of, of his earlier statement, um, there is limited space in the U.S. Uh, for port uh, acreage. So, you know, in Europe, 
um, several hundred acres to maybe even a thousand acres is a common offshore wind port size. Um, we're working with acreages because of the um, be, because uh, waterfront space is is at such a premium here, especially on the east coast of the U.S. Um, we're working with acreages that are in the 30, 40, or 50 acre range, which means that. Um, it's very difficult to, for instance, if you're talking about a, a construction base port or what we call a marshalling port, um, if you're if you're looking at that activity, um, you cannot marshal a full 800 megawatt project out of a 30-acre port site in uh, a one year, and so the developers are beginning to look at um, doing marshalling of a certain portion of the components out of one port and potentially using other ports as storage for other components that they can build in there. And so you're starting to see um, discussions between um, the ports in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, for in instance, as they are sharing um, space. And um, just even with some of the um, activities that have been going on with the um, uh, the the investigations and the and the uh, data gathering that's been gone you know big big ships that go out to sea to collect the geophysical and geotechnical um, information for the different development projects have been in the various northeast ports and uh, in some cases there have been so many of those vessels in port that um, the the ports have had to call each other and say hey you know we need some assistance can you um, lighter up some of these vessels for us for a period of time um, because we're overloaded and and that collaboration the ports are used to working together I mean let's face it um, uh, commerce on the waterfront has been happening for hundreds of years in the U.S. and thousands of years globally. The ports know that they need to work together, and that's going to happen at the grassroots level. And so you see some of that going on between the ports of Rhode Island and Massachusetts. And then, you know, most recently, there's been a formal agreement uh, with North North Carolina, with the southern states that are looking at um, for, for collaboration from both the standpoint of the supply chain and attracting manufacturing, as well as sharing port resources. So uh, those are things that they're, um, they're, they're kernels that are, that are starting, but um, uh, you know, we think that they're going, this collaborative process is going to grow as the development of offshore wind occurs. And I think we only need to remind ourselves that at present, there are seven turbines in the water spinning in the US. Um, the projection is if all the um, if if all the commitments are met that the states have met for offshore wind, then in about ten to fifteen years there'll be well over a thousand turbines in the water spinning. And if you think about the marine activity that has to occur within the ports to make that happen, um, that's you know hundreds of tur in some cases hundred or hundreds of turbines a year um, going in the water and that is going there's no way you can avoid collaboration um, with that much activity going on so it, it I, I think it's uh it's something that is happening and it's going to continue to occur as the ports become the central driver for how the management of the logistics happens wow um I think I can kind of feel Mark nodding his head a little bit. Is there anything you wanted to add add to that discussion, Mark? <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely agree with, with uh, the everything that, that Joe said there. It, it, I think the, um, the 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 bit around the co- the collaboration bit for us was uh, having a, a campaign, if you might say, um, so that we could you know promote our our region uh, externally. So you know around Europe, and you know that was around uh, business attraction. Uh, and developing the supply chain, getting the companies uh, out and about to other countries, and you know the US was part of that, and and uh, you know that's where we created so many, uh, we visited so many times and worked worked with New Bedford and Rhode Island particularly. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think that's that's the, the the key to the collaboration. Collaboration happens anyway, as Jay said, at, at a local level, you know, uh, and it, it is a lot of this is dependent on the uh, physical nature of the, the the infrastructure that you already have. So it, Grimsby was all, was never going to be a manufacturing facility; it was always going to be uh, an O and M port. Hull was a bigger port, ideal for manufacturing. So these things work them, them the, themselves out in, in a way. Uh, and the supply chain, which is what what I've mainly been interested in, uh, operates around the ports, all, all around the ports. Whoever's whoever's uh, won any projects, you know, uh, it's so business goes wherever. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And I mean, I I I am excited to hear that this kind of uh, tone of collaboration is going to happen. It's got to happen if we're going to go forward. I think sometimes we get siloed by these borders around us and they seem so so finite but they're they're not i mean everything happens regional in a lot of cases so um jay uh jay was talking a little bit about um or he keeps bringing up some some tidbits about what has been learned from the uk and what has been learned from europe as far as how they've operated and stuff but i'm curious um in your own experiences and background and what you know about the industry's history like what type of lessons have you learned from um, our own projects here in the United States as far as offshore wind energy production um, and such? Well, sure. Um, that's, that's, again, another great question. And um, there's, there's a host of lessons learned. Um, we, uh, we have been a nascent industry here in the U.S. Um, there has been nothing quite comparable to it, um, at least not in the East Coast of the United States. Um, so uh, there's been a huge amount of lessons learned. Um, um, a couple major takeaways um, are, um, you know, just the importance of uh, public participation and making sure that um, everything that's done has a certain level of transparency and that uh, stakeholders and stakeholder engagement is undertaken very early on. Um, you know, some of the toe stubbing that has occurred thus far in the U.S. in the development of offshore wind has been related to um, maybe not having full understanding of, of where the stakeholders stood on, on various issues. And so that really has now been taken to heart. And um, things like marine spatial planning is something that you hear very commonly uh, ushered in, in, the, in the halls of the, of the offshore wind professionals here uh, in the U.S., which was not uh, as big a consideration in the early days when people were focused, you know, as Jen said earlier, on the turbines. Um, 
And so now there's a, a much more holistic approach, uh, and that that is proving to uh, be the the secret to uh, making things move forward, and um, is is a great lesson learned. Um, you know, along with you know, just don't put your turbines too close to shore. Um, there's a, there is definitely a viewshed issue, uh, as there is with essentially every infrastructure thing that's ever been built in history. Uh, one has to consider what uh, the folks who uh, need to look at it and or need to live with it um, are are thinking, and that again is another stakeholder engagement issue that that one has to uh, apply. And I think one of the other things that's really beginning to emerge as a real lesson learned is that um, while the the European um, experience is deep and uh, has has definitely been successful in the offshore wind realm, this is not a copy-paste situation. We are not going to take, the U.S. is 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 not um, going to literally just copy every process and procedure and apply it. And um, if you just sort of look at uh, where the, how the ports are integrating, we don't have the mega port situation except in a very few geographic locations where, where there is space to do that particularly in the Northeast US, there just is not a place to put a couple of thousand acres of, uh, of megaport that can handle manufacturing, um, can handle marshalling and uh, laydown areas for, for all of these um, different offshore wind things. So that means multiple ports are going to be used, smaller acreages within some of those ports. The efficiency of how those ports run is going to be, have to be extremely high because they don't have as much um, space. And there will be um, and, and this integrated ports network that we've been talking about for a while is going to develop. And the approach to the even the installation with uh, feeder vessels having a much um, uh, feeder vessels that take components from the from the port areas out to the installation uh, locations where a, a large installation vessel will then uh, install the components that is going to be uh, much more the norm in terms of how wind farms are put together here in the US than it has been in Europe. And uh, I know that when we started on this initially and started designing some of these ports for offshore wind here in the US, we were told specifically by you know the European um, offshore wind experts that um, you, you, you absolutely had to have wind installation vessels, wind turbine installation vessels going into the ports, picking up the components and taking them out and then installing them. And that was the, the most efficient way of doing it. And what's turning out here in the US uh, for many logistical regions, reasons, not the least of which is many of the ports that are, are being developed for offshore wind are behind bridges. Um, that that won't allow these wind turbine installations into the port areas, uh, as well as the Jones Act that um, just, you know, we don't have the kind of wind installation Jones Act vessels yet, although they're coming, um, we don't have them yet. So um, w the feeder vessel approach is something that is, um, is becoming the norm and is starting to, um, actually Europeans are now starting to look at the way that logistics chain is being developed here in the US and saying, hmm, gee, I wonder if they can make it 
economical and feasible. I wonder if we can. And they're starting to think about using feeder vessels more in some of the um, offshore wind installations in Europe as well. So the, there's a synergistic effect in terms of the learning curve. And um, I think that we're, the, the, the U.S. is moving from its nascent phase into, you know, sort of full development phase. And um, that there's certainly things that are going to be done the American way here, no question about it. Uh, that'll be a little different than uh, the way things are done in Europe. Uh, and and we think and we hope that there will be some of the lessons learned in the U.S. that can be taken back in terms of, you know, rounds three, four, and five for development in, in Europe. Um, I just wanted to, I have a, I have a follow-up question from that for, for both Jay and Mark. And then I think, uh, Jen has a question she would like to ask. Um, so I'm going to direct this to Mark first, cause I'm wondering if he, you know, talking about the feeder vessel approach and those lessons learned taken from the U S if you have a response to that, but also on top of that, I am curious as, um, Jay mentioned this holistic approach and also how we can't have these big mega ports and we're having multiple ports and small acreage um, doing these different tasks. While this is ramping up, um, offshore wind energy production ramping up and um, this infrastructure has to go in, on top of that, are, is this development um, also considering enhancing facilities for existing uh, working waterfront uses such as commercial fishing, tourism, is some of that also being considered while uh, infrastructure at the port and stuff is being enhanced? Well, well it's a few questions <laughs> rolled, in, rolled into one, but I'll, I'll start uh, with, with, your, with your first one. Um, so uh, we were lucky enough to have uh, Siemens Gamesa invest in Hull um, in, in development of a port there and a uh, factory um, to build blades, which which employs a thousand people, um, and alongside that, the development of the ports. We've got three keys, um, uh, which effectively is a construction port. Those components uh, uh, all arrive from all around the world. So the blades are manufactured in Hull. Uh, the nacelle is manufactured in Cuxhaven in Germany. Uh, the towers can come from anywhere from Vietnam uh, and Denmark, uh, and they're all shipped into Hull. And uh, there's a pre-assembly site there um, that goes onto the uh, uh, offshore wind vessels for out for deployment. So there's already a, a feeder system in place. Uh, so you need know, didn't you know, the idea is you only needed one nacelle factory in Europe, and then it would be shipped to uh, construction ports around uh, the rest of Europe. So, you know, Jay's right, that's that's what's happening. We didn't foresee that. We, we didn't certainly didn't foresee uh, towers being uh, brought in from, from Asia, but that happens on on, uh, on on vessels, and then it's fed around the North Sea. So the logistics of it is, is really important. Um, but, yeah, for, for deployments, you do need a, a reasonable-sized port that can... Uh, that can uh, has the, the right kind of keys for uh, the pre-assembly. Um, terms of the, uh, the the impact on, I mean, both ports in Hull and Grimsby were, you know, semi-derelict. Uh, so they've they've now um, uh, they're completely modernised, and and Hull also has a service centre on there, which is quite a huge building, and along with that, a, a training centre that trains 
several thousand people a year. Um, in Grimsby, uh, they, along with the developments of the O&M centres, uh, particularly for Ersted and um, uh, and uh, RWE, uh, is seeing the port being uh, completely completely uh, regenerated, and a lot of the old buildings will uh, will be turned uh, into office uh, blocks and digital uh, learning centres. So it's it's had a you know really uh, quite a quite a big impact on those uh, former uh, fishing areas. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine it sounds like, you know, somewhat transition, somewhat, you know, trying to, to maintain. Um, Jay, I, you know, I'm curious in, in, in the, the East Coast and stuff are, are enhancing facility, you know, these existing facilities for our existing uses of commercial fishing, recreational fishing, tourism. Is that being considered while, you know, ports are um, enhancing? Yes, absolutely, and um, I think there there are two parts to this answer as well, and I'll 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 sort of present them in the reverse order of of Mark's answer. But um, the the ports are uh, very cognizant of the fact that there are a lot of other uses, including fishing and tourism, and recreation, and frankly other industrial uses that are occurring, and um, the 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 activities that are going to be associated with offshore wind, um, I think everyone is cognizant now that this is not you know a small undertaking when a port becomes part of the the supply chain for offshore wind. It means giant vessels, giant components, lots of activity, um, you know, lots of crew that are going in and out uh, from the port to the wind farm. Um, all of those things adds traffic. Um, they add uh, potential inconvenience, and there's the potential for, for um, you know, uh, impacts. And so um, there are a, a variety of studies that are being undertake, undertaken by the ports, in some cases the states and others, and developers to look at how to um, really mitigate some of the potential conflicts and create a situation of harmony. And some of that is, uh, as Mark touched on, some of the training programs that can allow, for instance, fishermen to get involved in the, the actual um, offshore wind construction uh, activities, uh, either captaining crew transfer vessels or being part of the um, installation crews themselves, or even just out collecting information that's useful um, from their own fishing vessels, uh, for instance, on, uh, with the uh, development of, of offshore wind. So there, there's certainly a, from a community level, a, 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 a movement afoot to um, integrate the, the different types of uh, economies that have developed. And if you just look at a port like New Bedford, which is the, the nation's, it is the largest um, per dollar catch fishing port in the country larger than any other port in the U.S. from the standpoint of how many dollars are involved. It's obviously a very important part of the economy there. And the one thing that um, everybody understands is that as offshore wind moves in and starts using the terminal in New Bedford, it needs to do so synergistically and, and make sure that both industries succeed and thrive. Um, and, and there's already um, upgrades to piers and things that are occurring as part of 
offshore wind or, or are being contemplated that will benefit the the fishing industry. So, um, and that goes with tourism too. The the ferries that are coming in and out, a lot of the ports that are being considered for um, offshore wind are already being used either as recreational ports for recreational vessels or as ports where ferries are coming in and out of. And there's a there's a, a really stark understanding that these things need to work synergistically. And so, um, you know, with a lot of the ports that we're working on developing, we're also uh, looking at putting um, uh, uh, piers on the edges of some of these uh, port facilities that can be used, for instance, by um, fi the fireboats or, or harbor master vessels or even some of the uh, other vessels that that may uh, require some temporary dockage because there's so much activity in the port. Um, and so there, there's definitely specific steps that are being taken to integrate some of those things. But then, you know, pivoting to the other aspect that Mark had brought up, and that is um, the investments to bring a port up to the utility level for offshore wind is extreme. Um, this is not something that's done um, very... Um, you know, without thinking about it pretty hard. And there is definitely an understanding that there may be in the, in, in the future some ups and downs in the offshore wind industry. Not every day is going to be the same. And the ports are, um, the, the, the redevelopment of uh, ports that we're getting involved with for offshore wind, we're very careful to make sure that the port has a utility for other things as well as offshore wind. So whether that's bulk or break bulk cargo, um, you know, lightering vessels, tying up vessels when, when things are not as active with offshore wind, um, those things are all part of the consideration because um, the, the, you can't afford not to be using a port when you've invested that much to develop it. And so um, there will be a broad utility of these ports and it's definitely being considered and thought of and the designs are being uh, developed to incorporate some of those concepts. Great. Thank you. That's really a great response um, and very exciting that we're, you know, um, you know, we're not only investing and enhancing a new blue economy industry, but we're also um, considering um, bolstering um, our other blue economy sectors um, in, in, in this region in particular. Um, and we also talked about that, you know, there's millions of dollars being invested um, in the, these these ports and working waterfronts. And um, Jay, could we start with you to talk a bit about how are the states and the ports and others taking advantage of this investment to promote uh, green infrastructure, green development to reduce our carbon footprint? Yes, well, uh, absolutely, and um, the you know as you say, and we and we've made the point several times that there's a, a large investment that's required in order to get the ports to, and, and the infra the entire infrastructure of the of the uh, of the coastal system to um, be able to handle the development of offshore wind, and um, I, I think everybody is very much on board from the political establishment right down to the workers um, that if you're going to do something, you might as well do it right. And so um, taking advantage of the investments that are being made and um, incorporating uh, both green, making the ports green themselves. So um, uh, pivoting to some greener technologies for the port 
um, the, the ports that are being um, uh, adapted for offshore wind is a positive from um, a standpoint of the environment and, and ecological impacts. Uh, and so, you know, you just think about the amount of, um, you know, for, for just a specific example, um, the ports that are being um, developed for offshore wind are including shoreside power, just a place for the vessels to plug in and do what's cold, called cold ironing, where, you know, the, the vessel doesn't have to run uh, 24 seven in order to keep its lights on and, and its computers running, um, it can plug into a short side power that saves the burning of fossil fuels while the port is in, while the vessel is in port. This is something that has been slowly been uh, being adapted at the big ports all up and down the, the coast for, for whatever reason, whether they're, you know, shipping for containers or autos or whatever, and not just for offshore wind. But as these ports get redeveloped for offshore wind, there's a real need for that uh, power um, and th that shoreside power, and so as a result, the the port becomes greener because it is um, it, it is having less impact. Um, and so those are some sort of specific examples of of how the greening. But uh, what you're going to see, I think, is um, similar to uh, the green building uh, phenomenon that's occurred over the the past couple of decades. That the ports are going to really begin to as they as they look at offshore wind as a mechanism for um, overall port development, uh, they're going to look at upgrading. And that, that also gets to resiliency. Um, the development of the ports are uh, considering things like sea level rise and, and increased storm um, awareness. And so the resilient act actions are being built into the ports as they do their upgrades. So there's a lot of positives that um, will come out of the investment for offshore wind that transcend, you know, beyond just the direct um, uh, benefit of offshore wind. And of course, offshore wind in, in and of itself is uh, a green, um, a, a, a green activity and a blue activity. And um, you know, uh, I and and um, my institution, Lloyd's Register, here has been very uh, lucky to work with the United Nations Global Compact and put some guidelines together for uh, the greening, for the development of offshore wind, the incorporation of more offshore wind to reduce greenhouse gases and meet the, the SDGs, the uh, sustainability goals, uh, uh, and to um, really enhance the the overall ecological um, footprint of the the marine economy. That's wonderful to hear. And Mark, uh, is this also happening in in Europe? It, it is certainly, and that's sort of an area that I'm I'm involved with at the moment. Uh, is um, looking at alternative uh, uh, fuel uh, propulsion systems for vessels. And a particular project for one of the offshore wind vessels that's uh, looking to be a zero carbon vessel in the future. So there's a number of partners involved uh, looking at things like hydrogen and ammonia, uh, looking at uh, alt you know, alternative bunkering for for the ports. Um, what kind of in infrastructures needed? You know, the plug-in variety uh, for uh, hydrogen. Um, uh, sorry, for uh, hybrid vessels so it's uh yeah it's certainly a big uh, big push from our side uh we're, we're involved in some of the clean maritime projects uh from uh, maritime uk uh, sort of national organization 
and and offshore wind is at the forefront of that really um obviously the developers are keen to uh decarbonize their supply chain so that goes right down to to vessels and uh into the port infrastructure um and we've we've um you know, as well as producing uh, gigawatts of clean offshore wind, the Humber, unfortunately, is the biggest emitter of uh, carbon uh, in the country. So uh, there's there's big plans to try and uh, reduce that, and and the, the you know the the ports uh, are one of the culprits in many ways uh, because we've got so many refineries uh, uh, along there. So there's some great uh, collaboration with the likes of Ersted and Philip sixty six looking to create hydrogen from offshore wind so uh yeah there's a there's um there's some fantastic uh initiatives and a new thinking you know in what you do with uh when you uh, create uh clean uh, green electricity rather than just pump it back into the into the grid uh you know what can be done with that locally can you power infrastructure locally for example so uh, yeah, I, I'm finding that's one of the most exciting things at the moment, um, you, you know, along with um, a, a kind of uh, expansion of uh, offshore wind. Yeah, you guys are getting me real excited about what's happening here. This is so great. Um, I uh, I mean, this has been wonderful. I appreciate um, Mark, Jay, Jen, everyone for joining us today. This has been a great discussion. I just wanted to uh, wrap up with one more question for both of you. Um, and it's about thinking about the future and looking ahead. Um, what do each of you see as the future needs in terms of expansion of the offshore renewable energy? And by needs, it, it really could be anything such as setting up local supply chains, stakeholder engagement, procurement, infrastructure, you know, general, like as you look ahead and as we're ramping everything up, what, what do you see those future needs to be? First, um, Jay, and then Mark. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, you're touching on something that is uh, is is a new passion. Um, uh, maybe it's not new, but um, I think one of the things that we here in the U.S. are absolutely committed to is to making offshore wind an American industry, uh, at least the American and the U.S. offshore wind an American industry. And what do I mean by that? I mean, I mean that, um, and no offense to our European colleagues and our friends and the folks that have taught us that offshore wind is a great thing to do, but the fact of the matter is, is we need to set up the supply chain here. We need to get the investment. We need to get the training for the American workforce so that what we have is an integrated, vertically um, connected um, supply chain, development chain, logistic chain, uh, and, and production chain for offshore wind uh, so that we get both the clean energy and we also get the jobs and the supply chain and the economic advantages that come with uh, the development of the new industry. And um, there is a grave danger that we can be overly reliant on, um, you know, what Europe has to offer and that, you know, Europe can essentially ship over the components. We can set them up um, offshore with, um, with, with kind of minimal uh, American involvement and um, we'll, we'll get the green energy. The green energy comes either way we do it. But if we really want to make this an American industry, we have to develop the ports. Um, there's 
a great amount of investment that's needed. Um, the financial stack to make these investments is very difficult to put together, and there needs to be some um, real uh, attention that's being paid to how <coughs> we can, uh, excuse me, that we can, uh, real attention that's paid to how we can develop the um, the financial backing to allow the development of the infrastructure that then allows the the supply chain and the, the technical development to occur. And, and it goes beyond just the ports. It, it dips into the full supply chain that goes into the hinterlands, right? All the different bits and bobs that get put into an offshore wind farm, uh, many of which can be uh, manufactured locally in the U.S. Um, with some conversion to, you know, training from, you know, almost the grade school level on up to get uh, new people interested in um, the, the research that occurs with the academic institutions and the research institutions that focus on better ways to, to develop things in, and what are the special circumstances that are needed in the U.S. All of this needs to be integrated to make this a, an American industry. It's going to require some investment, yes, but um, like so many other things that um, we have found investing in over the, the decades and the centuries, it will pay the dividends. And uh, it, it is no secret that, um, you know, the, the transportation industry has found that, you know, for every dollar invested in the roads, the rails and the airports, there's between five and ten dollars of economic direct economic activity that's developed as part of that. I think we're going to see the same kind of thing. Yes, there are millions of dollars that are needed to in invest in uh, and tens of millions of dollars that are going to be required, hundreds of millions even for uh, developing the ports. But that will turn around into hundreds of millions to billions of dollars of economic activity. Um, that will help the the American economy. It'll help us climb out of the situation that we're in from an economic standpoint, and it will really um, kind of light the fire under uh, the development of the energy transition as a you know an American uh, approach to uh, a global problem. That's a that's a good note to end on, um, Mark. Uh, what do you see as some of the future needs? Well, I suppose having devoted the last uh, 10 years or so uh, uh, to developing the, the supply chain, building on opportunities, you know, as my, my role at, at Team Hull Marine Alliance as, as, the, as the chief exec, uh, you know, we, 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 we came a long way in the early days. It was, uh, you know, it was difficult to, um, to get companies into the supply chain, but, you know, now we've got companies who are working uh, all over the world and, uh, it, and delighted to say we've got a couple of companies who've uh, set up in um, in Rhode Island and uh, between them they'll be you know uh, plan to employ around 150 people so it, it, it's a win-win for, for both both sides for for, for us and and for also uh, 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 USA um, I, I think uh, we did find it hard um, and it was a huge amount of uh, work I think what's key is um, you've got to uh, dive deep, really, and, and develop uh, supply chain programs. Uh, involve as many uh, companies that are, you know, they've got they've got the capacity and capability to to enter the supply chain to help them. And uh, you know, we we our program is really around 
uh, educating to start with and, and, and inspiring them. And, uh, you know, uh, and that's works. Um, I think what's, you know, we're at a different f- a level now from those earlier days where we've got a, um, you know, kind of government support now for the supply chain. Uh, we have a, an industrial strategy. Uh, and part of that was the offshore wind sector deal. And the, the, the commitment is try uh, nationally to try and get 60% of um, uh, UK content in an, in an offshore wind farm. I think in the early days it was like 5 or 10% or something. So there's a, there's a drive to do that. Um, you know, we've got, a, we've got a target of uh, 30 gigawatts uh, by 2030. Uh, there's targets like uh, getting a third of the workforce uh, uh, as female, by by 2030, so all you know, all all, um, all good uh, targets. Um, the the bit we lacked in trying to get supply chain programs going was support. Now there's um, uh, and there's about 250 million into an offshore wind growth partnership to again to transition companies that might be in oil and gas or aerospace. And I think for the US, and you know, we we talked to Jay and and, uh, and and folks over there that this this is this is how you get the supply chain, and um, it, you know, there's no easy route to it. Uh, it's it's uh, it's 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 fairly fairly long term, and uh, the companies that want to be involved will have to work, work quite hard, um, you know, to be part of that. But uh, what what you do get is. Uh, you know, you're thinking about uh, a global industry now, and not just a UK or US. So, uh, companies that are, you know, might be in uh, Massachusetts or, or Rhode Island, or, or uh, they need to be thinking about uh, not just opportunities locally, um, but uh, you know, in Asia and Europe as well. And, and I know a few companies from the US are already operating in in Europe. So, so that's great. But yeah, supply chain. Uh, it, it, it's a national, it's an international opportunity, not just a national one. Wow! Yeah, big things happening all over the world. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward and excited to see how this all evolves and grow, grows. Thank you, Mark, Jay, for being on today's show, and thank you, Jen, for co-hosting with me. You can learn more about the National Working Waterfront Network at nationalworkingwaterfronts.com. And subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network to get this and all the other great shows available for free on ASPN. Have a great day. Bye.